welcome to the Alienist Angel of Darkness recap podcast. My name is Alex, and I have not read Caleb Carr's The Angel of Darkness. My name is Nick, and I have read Caleb Carr's The Angel of Darkness. Today we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 1 of this TNT series titled Ex Ore Infantium. While we will not be spoiling any of the book, and by extension any future plotlines of the show, we will be discussing the details of the show through Season 2, Episode 1, so pause this and go catch up before you listen to the rest of our episode. You can find more episodes of our podcast at TheAlienist.tv, and you can send feedback to feedback at TheAlienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast. If you enjoy this show or any other show on the Midwest Podcast Network, please consider heading over to mpn.bz slash Patreon and pledge as little as a dollar a month to make our network even better. Special thanks to Jason K, Gojo, and Sidza who have pledged at the level of $10 per month. Speaking of the other shows on the Midwest Podcast Network, check out Horror Movie Yearbook as they continue their Summer of Scream, discussing Scream 3, as well as the Midwest Game Nerds Podcast, where we talk about The Last of Us Part 2, and soon we will discuss Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, find links to those at MidwestPodcastNetwork.com. Nick, uh, I know you're doing well because I already asked you in the version of this podcast that we just trashed because I forgot to record <laughs> my side of the conversation. You don't have to tell them that, Alex. <laughs> you can put that info behind a paywall, That's and okay. then people can learn about the uh, the bloopers. That's all right. Yeah, I mean, I'm still doing well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've been, since we last spoke, I've been traveling. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm half a glass of bourbon shorter than I was when we started recording. <laughs> yeah, you had to hit it pretty hard when I was like, oh, no, I'm not recording. <laughs> <laughs> I debated going up and getting more, actually. I was, I was going to... I was going to go grab a, a refresh, but I don't need it. Refresh. It's really hot in the office slash temporary bedroom uh, right now. So that's coupled with the bourbon is making me very uncomfortable. Oh, well, good. But what are you going to do? For some reason, this room of the house is like 1897 New York <laughs> and in the summer. And it just can't get down with the, the climate and the rest of the house. In the winter, it's freezing in here. In the summer, it's boiling lava hot. It doesn't make, But the rest of the house, totally fine. It's really strange. So what you're saying is you can feel the spirit of Dr. Laszlo Chrysler in the room right now. <laughs> yes. Of how hot yeah. It is. <laughs> Definitely. Beautiful. I think I unfortunately have a little more in common with more, but, uh, you know, Laszlo would be the one to leer over my shoulder and say, why do you feel that way? <laughs> Well, beautiful. We'll uh we'll we'll barrel on so that your your time in the eighteen ninety seven climate is not uh Oh, I mean the sun's going down, so it'll 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 cool off in here in five, six hours. So we're good. Okay. Well, there you we go. Got plenty plenty more chances to not record <laughs> and, take us and that drop long. this out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for real, things are good. We are uh it's mid July at this point. We we're last recording season three of Westworld, and that was an unusual and, and strange experience because of uh, we were still pretty much under the stay at home order in mm-hmm. Michigan at that point. Yeah. Now that that's no longer in effect. But by the time this podcast is over this this entire series, it probably will be again because of the way things are going. Yeah. And um, sadly true. But at least we have a, a little more freedom so to speak. Not that I am against the quarantine whatsoever, but it is, things are a little bit different. Things were, were weirder than certainly. Yeah. But, uh, now the notion of recording a podcast like this remotely isn't as foreign as it was. True. <laughs> Very true. The first time. 
Yeah. Well, with any luck, uh, I don't know if things will be too different four weeks from now, but uh, we'll have to see uh, how things go. And uh, you know, it's really funny. Like the so I was watching, obviously watching this these first two episodes, and there was a scene in episode two when Moore is walking through like the like the like meat market, like meat packing district, mm-hmm. and he's like making, he's like wrinkling his nose because like st- shit just smells. And I was watching it, and literally the first thought I had, like they, the production value in the season is clearly higher. Like the, the sets don't feel like the same street, you yeah. know. And then the CGI aerial shots of New York are way more impressive. Like clearly that's lifted. But I, I was so impressed with how disgusting they made it look because mm-hmm. I'm sure it was. And the first thought in the middle of the episode was like, man, people are upset about masks. <laughs> And this is this was literally their life. Like they they were walking through mud, like no matter what. And they even describes in the first book vividly how there's like horse crap and piss that like literally is just in the street. You can't avoid it. You just get used to walking in it and the stench of like that all that. It, uh, ugh. It, and it just is so funny because the show's doing a really great job of representing how unglamorous it was and yeah. how the. The, the living back then was hard unless you were like really wealthy, even if you were like it, whatever the middle class equivalent would have been then. I, it wasn't comfortable. And I just was like, huh, here I am on my couch I, and the world's mad. I do believe the uh, the synopsis that TNT sent out in the beginning of the show or when when season two was kind of announced and the date was announced, they mentioned the idea that the show continues to shine a light on the differences and similarities of of what we are going through culturally anyway and i feel like it's continuing to do that it is certainly highlighting weird weird similarities and differences uh not only in that but also with like some of the rioting and things that you see in the first episode and yep things of that nature the more the more things change the more they stay the same i I believe and when you realize that this was over a hundred years ago mm-hmm. and this some of these same problems same struggles were were going on and it's it's definitely i mean maybe the show to a slightly lesser extent but the Caleb Carr is is a historian and he's he's a history nerd like he that dude is a nerd and he does did his research he, he's he, all the actual historical figures that appear throughout the books although the situations they're in are obviously dramatized and fictional uh the the people themselves he definitely went to uh great lengths to research them and and document them properly and so i think that you can consider the spirit of what a lot of those characters are doing in the in the books and in the show to be pretty true to life and like uh elizabeth caddy stanton they they throw her up right in the first episode which is cool and she is in the book but she doesn't come into play until maybe like halfway through or something. Okay. And uh, when, when they right away through that, I was like, there are probably the majority of viewers who have no idea who that is or why that they, they probably just think it's a character, but like, no, she's a real, she was legit. And like that, that's who she was. That's what she was doing. Yeah. I believe Dr. Marco as well is, is potentially based on somebody real from kind of that same time frame who was studying, you know, basically precursors to obstetrics and 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 you know um maternity uh care and things of that nature so mm. it seems like 
it, fe- it feels like they're kind of still, he's still peppering in people. So I don't know if Dr. Marco is also a character in the book or not, which you would be able to comment too, but. Certainly not in the capacity that he is in the show. Okay. Yeah. He's being made out to be kind of one of the major villains, right? So. Definitely, yeah, an, an-, an antagonist for Laszlo on a couple levels. So it, maybe it's interesting to me if they're starting to kind of, um, maybe they've started to hone in on what one of the potential differences between this show and like any other procedural or crime show is because um, like they can latch on to the idea that there are these big historical figures that can take part in their stories if, if they shape things the way they like and do their research, like as you were saying, Caleb Carr did, and, and like try to make sure that they can fit somebody like Teddy Roosevelt or Elizabeth Cady Stanton into the fiction, right? right? So it's interesting. Um, I did want to say real quick, we did get an email from uh, Tim. Uh, he wrote in to us, we mentioned something about maybe the show continuing on past the books uh, in our primer episode. And he mentioned to us that there is a third book already in print titled Surrender New York. He said, Wikipedia shows that as a third book in the Alienist series. Look forward to hearing more of the podcast that, uh, as the season unfolds. Thanks, Tim from Lubbock, Texas. Thank you, Tim, for writing in. Uh, we appreciate it. I did do a little looking into it. It sounds like Surrender New York takes place in 2016, which is the year that it was actually released. And it follows a criminal psychologist who uh, is a fan of, of Laszlo's or knows of Laszlo's work. And it takes place in New York. And, and so I, I don't obviously I haven't read it. I don't know exactly how well it connects in with the alienist stories, but it is kind of of a different ilk. So I don't know if they would choose to go that way if they continued this TV series with this characters, obviously. But uh, certainly interesting to know. And it sounds like Caleb Carr has plans for, like, a sequel to The Angel of Darkness and a prequel to all of the stories uh, involving these same characters. But um, as of right now, there hasn't been much news on that front since, I think, Surrender New York was released uh, four years ago or so. So That'd be awesome uh, if if he just forged ahead with, like, the, the series and, like, wrote the wrote the larger treatment or outline for like a season three before he actually wrote the book because they're the angel of darkness this the tv series has already deviated enough from the book that it uh i think he could do that with season three he could write the series and then he could go ahead and write the book in the in the way that he wanted to as a as a novel yeah it's kind of like you know game of thrones wise it's like george r, r. martin learned how not to end the series if uh if he ever <laughs> right. decides to do so <laughs> So, one and one of the things I miss the most about the books, as compared to the series, is the the way it's bookended with like the quote unquote modern day narration that the alienist is uh, from obviously the, the well not obviously if you haven't read it the book is told from Moore's perspective mm-hmm. and it's bookended with him writing the book or the manuscript of it the day or in the days following Teddy Roosevelt's funeral mm-hmm. and it's really striking and. Uh, kind of poignant and beautiful and sad when he in that intro is like an older man and he buries Teddy and he and Laszlo go and have dinner and they are recounting that first case I think as he describes it the first case that really brought them all together and then so you all you know from that prologue is that Laszlo John and Teddy at least make it out of the conflict of that book well you know Teddy does because he would go on to be the president yeah but you don't know anything about any of the rest of the characters' fates, which is really cool. And then it, it gets picked up again at the end. 
Uh, and then the Angel of Darkness, the whole book is actually told from Stevie's perspective. And that's kind of an interesting shift uh, tonally and uh, perspective-wise because he's obviously in a completely different place than Moore. But it starts with that same bookend, except Stevie is now, like I think, in his mid to late 30s. And, uh, oh no, he's early 30s, my mistake. I was just reading this. I started reading the book the other day and I'm about 100 pages in, so I'm going to try to stay ahead of the show, but it's going to be hard. Uh, and Moore is like 60-ish. And he and Moore have a conversation uh, about what had happened in the events of the book. And the book is really interesting because they, in the prologue, in this prologue with Stevie and Moore, they actually name the killer right off the bat. They tell you who it oh, is. Oh, wow. And... You, the prologue paints the killer as so horrifying and so terrifying that even saying their name makes more like recoil in the book because mm. he doesn't even want to think about it. And so you, in the complete opposite of the first book, you're presented with the killer's identity right up front. And then it's up to the power of the novel to make that killer live up to the, the expectation that's presented. And it's really good. But obviously, so then you know that at least John and Stevie... And by extension, because the first book, Laszlo, uh, make it out. And Stevie, actually, after he and Moore, they get into like a little fight about it. And Moore says that story doesn't need to be told. And it couldn't be told by Stevie because he has no training as a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) Moore, so they make a a wager about it. And so that night after Moore leaves, Stevie starts writing it. And it's happening as Moore is writing about the, the Beecham case. So, uh, in a okay. weird, in-universe way, both books are being written at the same time. Interesting. And that these conversations are happening around the same time, and both manuscripts are being written simultaneously, mm. which is really cool. Certainly and, a, a level that the show will never, t- never touch on, seeing as No, which is kind of, of a... Which is totally fine. I actually don't hold it against the show. I kind of did in the first season, but now I'm I'm more in tune with what they're doing with the series. And obviously, season two is not being told from Stevie's perspective. <laughs> so they've tossed it all out the window. And honestly, it's probably for the better because there's a lot of stuff that will get excised just by virtue of that. And it will make the story better for an adaptation obviously yeah uh, and it but it is weird because Moore is generally with laszlo and the key players so to speak in the case and stevie often gets sent on these like side errands and when you're reading it at least when i'm reading it even now i've read it this is probably my fourth read of the second book uh i find myself wanting to know what's going on with that group because i'm so used to it from the alienist and stevie gets sent to go like pick someone up and you're along for that journey, which is kind of interesting in its own way. But at the same time, I'm like, no, I want to know what's going on over there with yeah. the adults, <laughs> huh. so to speak. But yeah, it's a really cool. It's a cool device. And I, I miss I was curious when they were making the first season of The Alienist. I was curious if we'd see them as older people on like the bookends. And I think that would have been kind of cool. Yeah. But, um, you know, maybe if they do a season three, they'll keep the same cast and they'll just age them up a little bit. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Um. All right, we should hop into our discussion of the episode, or at least the beginning of the episode. I did notice, uh, did you happen to see the recap with however you watched it? The recap of I did, one? yeah. It was very cool. Yeah, with Daniel Bruhl as Laszlo Chrysler, like, sitting yeah. at a table explaining it to you. I thought that was Sitting kind of down funny. for an interview? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was really neat. It kind of, it started playing, and I was like, oh, it's a recap, cool, I'll let it run in the background. And then when Laszlo was, like, directing his lines to, like, the audience, I kind of looked up, and he was looking into the camera, and I was like, oh, shit, this is neat. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't. I feel like I haven't really seen that before in a TV series. No, but. not at all. It was really cool. Yeah, and it kind of weirdly felt like kind of period appropriate. It felt like something <laughs> yeah. somebody back then would pull up a chair and be like, "Let me fill you in on what's been going on." Yeah, and no. it just was kind of cool. I liked it quite a bit. It was it was a fun fun touch. Um, I did also want to touch on the title of the episode is Ex Ore Infantium. In Latin, that means uh, out of the mouths of babes, I believe. Let me, yes, out of the mouth of babes, which is uh, appropriate for the episode. Uh, there's also a poem written by poet Francis Thompson, who uh, interestingly, as of late, uh, was con- relatively recently, I think in the early 2000s, was considered one of the potential suspects for the Jack the Ripper cases due to some Ooh. interpretations of his poems, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting and, and weird. Uh, yeah. A kind of weird parallel to this. Uh, the poem itself is, is kind of... I didn't delve into it too. I'm not... You know, we know I can't read on this TV... on this podcast show, so... Um, <laughs> but it's this very, like... Um, you know, it's like this weird wondering of, like... It, did Jesus go through the same experiences that I am going through as a child or as a human? Uh, and, and it's kind of strange, but if any, but any religious scholars out there want to tell me what they feel as though, if the poem connects to the show in any way, please write in. I would, I would be very glad to hear from you. So, but yeah, let's get into the teaser. Uh, in New York City in 1897, one year after the events of the first season, a woman awakens in a maternity hospital to find her baby missing. As she walks around frantically checking other cribs for her child, she is subdued as a Dr. Marco looks on. Um, so, I guess the only big question I have for you here is this kind of the same inciting incident that is from the book, or is this one of the big deviations that you are oh, hinting this towards? Is, this is fresh. Wow. All right. Well, all right. So, big disclaimer up front. Uh, I like I said, I think this is my fourth read through of this book. I've read this one f- certainly several fewer times than the first book, kind of because I kind of like the first one more. But the first one's also shorter. This one's long. This one's almost seven hundred pages. Yeah. Uh, so some of my details are a little muddy currently. That's why I'm trying to read it and stay ahead of the show as best I can. They do. There was some stuff that didn't happen in the first episode that I, that does happen in the book at the beginning, and I thought they just trashed it. And I was like, that's too bad. But then it did happen in the second episode, so I said, oh boy. there." So the, some of this may have been pulled from the middle of the book and moved up front, but I don't think so. This is this didn't ring a bell at all. So, so the whole Martha Knapp case, it seems like, is, is maybe... I, I think that it is in the book, but it's to a far smaller degree. Okay. It's definitely not like none of this, none of the prison stuff, none of the execution uh, is familiar. Interesting. Um, Yeah. I don't know if anybody had ever heard of like a lay-in hospital, but it seems like it's basically like a maternity, uh, like a specific maternity type hospital. The idea that you're going to come here and have this baby. Um, and, and, but it also seems very nefarious in, in the ways that they are depicting it. And as we kind of learn more in, in episode two, um, you know, you hear those stories of like, uh, old, um, wealthy men having their wives committed to be with their mistresses or whatever the situation may be, you know, and it seems like this is going to play heavily into that as well. Um, yeah. 
everything was scary back then. Like yeah. even the woman waking up in the night, like having to like light a lantern to walk around and look around. Everything is creepy. Yeah. And I'm sure they were used to it. So it was no big deal. But watching it, I'm just like, oh, this is horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And even just kind of like, I don't know, the idea of um, I was trying to read more about there. So there was like a real hospital in New York. Um, I don't know that it had the same name as like the lay in hospital or, or what exactly. I think it was called like the laying in hospital of New York City or something. But, like, the idea that this had been a hospital that was in use for a long period of time up until, like, the mid-1900s, just, like, the lo-fi idea of a hospital then, like, needing to, like, change and fit the purposes of medicine as medicine developed just felt horrifying to me. The idea that, like, you're relying (laughs) on the architecture and and these buildings that have been used since before like sterilization techniques for rooms were perfected and things of that nature was just like it gave oh, me the right. heebie-jeebies thinking about it so yeah yeah that's why it's so funny that i mean i <clears throat> i suppose i get it in a way because people are afraid of change and they're ignorant of what's new but it's funny how much resistance laszlo and the isaacsons are met with throughout both books and in regard to all their techniques. And that's um, when you said something about the, the sequel book, the one from 2016 uh, surrender New York, uh, the protagonist being familiar with Laszlo's work or having knowledge of Laszlo's work. I kind of was like, I hope that it's not like the, the thesis of the book that Laszlo's work was never accepted because it was too radical because in the, in the alienist and in the angel of darkness, his, he is considered radical, but as a reader in the modern day, you know, that like his techniques were eventually brought into the mainstream psychology. Yeah. Same with the Isaacson's with their detective work. Everyone laughs at it. They're like, what are you going to get from a bullet? And they think that's just like stupid. And, uh, but now we know these are techniques that are used. So the, it, that's a cool way that the books and the, and a little bit, the shows kind of, rely on your knowledge to fill in the gaps and be like, well, I know these are common, you know, tools of the trade in both these professions now. So I, but the show, the, well, the, the first book does too, I, I guess to an extent when they have that meeting with like JP Morgan and them and they basically tell them, Hey, you can't broadcast this. Like they sweep it under the rug. And I guess then that could kind of be the point that all of Laszlo's work could have been kind of buried by somebody in the 1940s or fifties. And, um, so in that way, I guess a sequel in the modern day could be interesting if somebody was stumbling upon this. But anyway, as a deviation. Yeah, no, I, I, I honestly, I'm I just kinda... think the, the portrayal of Laszlo is a, is a fine line to walk because he's, he's a complex character. And, uh, I think Daniel Brule does a great job with it. And there's a scene in episode two that I was like, oh yeah, like dude crushed it. <laughs> and it's it's hard it's a hard it's a hard tone to strike he's a weird character yeah absolutely um yeah i'm kind of i i'm curious to know more about the third book and how it kind of fits in with things but I, I obviously didn't want to read too too much into it in in the event that someday i did want to read it if i ever learned to read but yeah i'll, I'll get around to that um all right let's move into act one uh, Sarah picks up the employees of her investigation agency along the way to pick up John Moore to head to Sing Sing, where Laszlo is meeting with Martha Knapp, the woman from the teaser, who has been convicted of killing her child despite the lack of a body. Martha is set to be executed by electric chair. Outside of Sing Sing, suffragist Elizabeth Cady Stanton 
learns uh, leads a protest against the execution. John, Sarah, Laszlo, Thomas Burns, and Dr. Marco all attend the execution, and Sarah tries to stop it, but her pleas fall on deaf ears, and Martha is electrocuted. Um, so we get to see Sarah has started her investigation agency or her detective agency, which is pretty cool. Uh, a good, mm-hmm. good development for her. The idea, although I, I'm curious if, um, if she chose to leave NYPD because she felt like she was being held back by like the patriarchal system of the police, or if it was just kind of a, um, you know. She felt like she could do more her on her own. Like I guess that's the same thing, right? But I, I wonder what her motivations for leaving were. Well, it's it's that combined with the fact that uh, her clients are exclusively women, and mm-hmm. they're frequently. She even says in the book that like women have a harder time getting help. Like they come to the police station and say, "I I have this. You know, I was abducted or I was raped or or." I think somebody murdered and the police don't take them seriously. So she thought she could do some good in that regard by basically being a women's detective agency. That's true. I think she also mentions that to the, uh, to the senora later on as well. Mm -hmm. Like you need a woman because they will not take you seriously at the, at the police station. So, right. Very interesting. Um, any other details about the start of the investigation agency that you want to touch on? I thought it was kind of a cool establishment. In the book, she doesn't have a staff like this, and I think that's super cool in the show that yeah. she has like people that work for her. That's a development that I would not have thought of, and I think it kind of rules. Like there's something, uh, I mean, Sarah's—they're all different in the show than they are in the book. But Sarah's like different in that regard that she's like kind of a good delegator, mm. and Sarah in the book is a little more like Tulip from Preacher in the okay. way that. She's immensely capable, but she's kind of scattershot, and okay. she's a little uh, she's a little difficult to get along with. Hmm. And uh, it's not that she's not wily and doesn't know how to use her her assets to her advantage, and and she's it's not that she's not charming or sociable, but she just is like kind of rough around the edges and doesn't take any shit. And generally, that's to her benefit, but sometimes it's to her detriment. Uh, and in the show, she's she really comes across as like a good like leader, uh, someone that people will follow. You know, they're kind of turning to her for the other women, even with the the suffragette uh, signage and all that that she has. Like she just is very like take charge and capable, which is really cool. Uh, and in the book, it's not that she doesn't have those qualities. She just doesn't really. Uh, she's more of a team player in the book. Okay. Like she runs the agency in the book, but it's pretty much just her. She's kind of doing like a Jessica Jones type thing, but she doesn't hesitate to come to these guys, to to all of her all of her dudes from the Beecham case to say like, "Hey, I've got this case and I think I could I could use your guys' help. What do you think?" That's kind of the inciting incident in the book is okay. that she comes to them and she's like, "I have this Senora, you guys have to meet her and hear her out. And they all are kind of like, eh, they're all kind of dismissive until they meet her and they hear the story. Yeah, and it seems a little weird that, like, the beginning of this episode, or even this whole first episode, kind of um, puts a little bit of tension between Laszlo and Sarah in terms of, like, Laszlo has the Martha Knapp case and he's supposed to find her daughter. And Sarah offers herself to him and he's kind of like, I'll come to you if I need you. But then also when Sarah goes to meet with the senora she's she's basically just like you don't need laszlo right now you need me 
And so kind of they've put a good tension between these two characters, but I'm kind of curious to see how that either comes to a head or resolves. And I think we've gotten kind of hints of both of those things kind of happening in these first two episodes. Yeah, I kind of don't want to see them come come to like blows again because they did that in season one. Yeah, we kind of already see that, and we know they've sort of reached an understanding of who each other are. They're both very stubborn, difficult people, and they do have that in the book, but it's to a lesser extent. It's more of a they just both immediately get fed up and throw up their hands at each other, and they're both just like bah, and then they <laughs> and then they drop it and they move on because they're they're more adult than that. Like they, they disagree on a lot of stuff and they both, she thinks he's arrogant and he thinks she's kind of just bullheaded and like, uh, won't listen. And, uh, I guess they're kind of similar in that way. They both kind of think the same thing of each other, but for different reasons. And, uh, it's, it's fun to watch the fireworks a little bit, but it also gets kind of old when you're just like, "Mm, all right. Yeah. Um, so also in this first act, uh, we have Laszlo sitting with Martha Knapp. So since this is kind of more uh, being focused upon more in the show, how do you feel about, like, um, does this feel like something that Laszlo would, like a situation Laszlo would find himself in, you know? Like, he is this alienist, and and maybe he was called to this trial to try and figure out why this woman would do this sort of thing. And it sounds like he's arrived at the conclusion that there's no way that she would, but clearly the jury has gone the other direction with Dr. Marco's findings, right? So Yeah, that happens in the book where he's called as like an expert witness, basically. Uh, Because he is, although people don't really trust him and they don't really like him, uh, he is still considered at the top of his field and his credentials are without equal. Uh, And in the book, he's weirder looking than Daniel Brühl. Daniel Brule's like pretty put together in the show. He's got a nice beard and like he looks he looks good. And in the book they describe him as being a lot more he's more like sickly. Mm. And he's not like ugly, but he's he's a lot more pale. He has and they say he has long, like jet black hair, like shoulder length black hair. He basically looks like Gary Oldman from Dracula, I think. Okay. So I was thinking he's got Tommy like, Weasel when you said that, but kind of, yeah. But with a goatee, I think a little more European looking, uh, but not in the Tommy Weasel way, <laughs> more in like the <laughs> The Gary Oldman way. Okay. Uh, I just picture Gary Oldman for some reason when they describe him. Or like 90s, like like Sleepy Hollow, Johnny Depp with a goatee, that kind of thing. He, but he's supposed to be kind of like gothy and uh, and weird. And people are kind of like, well, what's that guy's deal? But in the show, he's presented much more. Like, you don't even know his his, his handicap really is present. Yeah. Uh, but he he did, he hides it well in the book, too. But anyway, yeah, the, the big difference here between both the character and season two is that uh the institute his institute for children is kind of his that's his life and in the book uh one of his wards commits suicide at the beginning well it's actually before the book the book starts and it's his last day at the institute because they're shutting it down for like a month while they investigate they Uh want to figure out why this boy committed suicide and they want to make sure that it's not because of laszlo so he's actually being barred from the Institute while this investigation goes on. So that gives him kind of this motivation to get involved in this case. It also means he has the time to do it. And he's kind of got this void left in him because of uh, the death of Mary in the first book. So he, he threw himself into his work at the Institute and then the Institute's being taken from him in the book. So he really is like truly has nothing. And he's like, 
uh, just kind of a shell. So this gives him something to pour himself into. And I think the show is kind of substituting that with this uh, Martha Knapp case with her baby, which is good because it ties into the Senora's case. It makes more sense. But I miss that aspect of him where he relates so well to kids. And like you understand that like helping children through their developmental years is like his passion in life. And like it really brings a humanity to him that is still not really there in the show. Like he still is kind of cold in the show, even though we know him well enough after watching a whole season with him, he still feels kind of distant and cold to me. And in the book, you get a lot more of that warmth and that, that rounded character out of him just because you, by, by association of John or even Stevie, you see him interact with some of these kids and you see how good he is with them. And like what a good regular guy he is. He just happens to be a little odd. Yeah. It's certainly like, uh, I think we only see one shot of the Institute where he's getting dropped off after the uh, execution. Yeah. And, you know, while back in the first episode of, of season one, he was basically like, you get to see the Institute and him actually interacting with these children and being the more understanding figure in their life than their parents or the people who have brought them to this Institute in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. So kind of, I wonder how much of a, of a back seat the institute is going to take overall like do you feel like it did in in the book because of the just, fact it, that yeah exactly yeah, yeah he's just not there so it it is in the background <clears throat> but it's such a fundamental part of his character that you kind of know it, it's one of the cornerstones of him so you it's you carry that knowledge with you and i don't think in the show it's bad i think using this case is interesting and it it gives you more of a one-to-one with this woman who you see get executed which by the way was horrifying yeah the electric chair is so gnarly and not in a good way. Like, that is so nuts. And it's crazy that in the show, they're like, oh, it's more humane than hanging. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> well, Burns' whole line is like, at least you don't shit your pants, which, you know, I feel like I'd probably also shit my pants in the electric chair before being electrocuted anyway. But, you know. Yeah. It's it, it, it gave me flashbacks to like the first time I watched the Green Mile. Yeah. And just like being the way it's portrayed is just it is it is utterly horrifying. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no way to like glamorize the electric chair. It is just it is nuts. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it was so effective in the show. Like it, th- this both of these episodes had moments that like disturbed me deeply. Yeah. Which is which is cool because like the sh- first season didn't do that as much. Um while still very disturbing, I think maybe the book did it better in the case of the first season and in the second season the show's doing it better, which is kind of cool that the show is more vividly portraying these moments than the book did. And ugh. ugh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it it kind of, there was a lot of it that like um specifically the stuff with the baby later in this episode just alarmed me as it like I I I honestly wondered like has there been anything depicted like this on cable television <clears throat> at all previously and it was just it was horrifying yeah. but yeah um uh, we did talk a little bit about the protests outside, the idea that Elizabeth Cady Stanton is a character in, in the show, um, so I don't know that there's a whole lot more to touch on that. Uh, there is a portion shown where John at Delmonico's is on the phone with Teddy, trying to get him to intervene in the Martha Knapp case. 
which yeah. seemed like an interesting way to um to have to kind of put him there but also like as we had noted it's not like the actor who played teddy was coming back as a main character but it kind of seems to make sense because he's off <laughs> nick nick just saluted him off because we don't need him anymore but uh teddy is off working as uh the uh, assistant secretary to the navy at this yeah. point as appointed by uh president william mckinley so it uh, there's a historical reason for him to not be directly influencing these events, but I'm kind of curious. I don't know if he will pop up later, if he pops up in all, at all in the book, but uh, we shall see. Nick yeah, is shaking we'll his fists. Uh, yeah, yeah, he can't. He can't say much about that, so that's fine. That's okay. Well, one interesting thing that they don't talk about in the show, at least not yet, but they do in the book, is that when Roosevelt leaves New York as police commissioner, the all the like underworld creeps back into the city more because he was so hard and mm. all the all the he was weeding out so much corruption in the police force and he was weeding out so much corruption in the city and really really like making a difference as much he could back then that they make it a point to say when he left and his replacement stepped in that all that old stuff started to roll back with a vengeance mm. because he wasn't there anymore and the sort of apathetic nature of a lot of the policing kind of came back into play which is kind of a, it's a really cool mood setter in the book when uh stevie is walking or he's, he's riding like the coach through this through the city and he's talking about this and how it's evident that the old ways are kind of coming back and it just kind of lays this like feeling of just eeriness throughout the book as you think about how you at least knew that the the top guy at the at the the police was like their boy and he was like as he was straight a shooter as good as a guy as it could get and he's not there anymore to bail them out when they need it yeah i i feel like some of that uh kind of comes through in the idea that we just see thomas burns like running roughshod over whatever the fuck he wants to do in new york in these two that episodes. is true yep but then also um he's got a spring in his step and a twinkle <laughs> in his eye <laughs> some tobacco in his pipe and oh uh, yeah he's and a hat on his head and some wax <laughs> in his mustache um but also there was a character sergeant doyle in season one who unfortunately i didn't do as much of my rewatch as i wanted to but sergeant doyle has now become captain doyle mm-hmm. after captain connor passed away at the end of season one and so you know that like there can't have been that much systemic change in this time period because Teddy's gone and the same people that were there are still here doing shady shit. So yep. it's it's interesting. Uh any other thoughts about this first act? I think Sarah's like impassioned plea for them to stop was obviously very good. Um mm-hmm. um and you know the idea that this type of execution would occur without even a, a corpse would be the biggest miscarriage of justice, you know? Yep. <clears throat> the fact that that could get through and the and, but the problem is is like that seems believable for 1897 i don't know how right, true yeah. that is but you know uh, but i'm sure yeah. i mean it it rings true certainly yeah it's gross that they still had like a gallery of people that would watch it too and and that they're talking about the electric chair as being like new yeah. And I was really ready to see some people like throw up and stuff and like leave the room and everyone just stares at it. And I was like, I don't know how to feel about that because I was a little disappointed that people didn't react more viscerally. But at the same time, I was like, 
people probably would have lapped it up and been like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. It's interesting because as I was watching that scene, I was kind of taken aback by the fact, like, you see Laszlo cannot, cannot watch. He he looks away. And, and so, um, Sarah, like, sheds a tear and things like that. Like, I, it, you're right. I feel as though, like, especially when Laszlo talks about the stink of burning flesh in his nose, like, it should have more viscerally affected a lot of people. But there is something about the pall that it puts over the room where like you probably like i at least assumed that like many of the people in that room were there to be like oh let's see what this new electric chair is about yeah that's true and i guess people used to roll out to the coliseum and watch people get slaughtered so really there's always that kind of primal urge that a lot of people have to just watch death which is so gross disgusting (laughs) yeah and there's you know I, I guess i can't be surprised there's a lot of people today that would lap it right up so i mean just turn on the news so yeah yeah the more things change right yep yep uh all right act two laszlo plays uh laszlo pays sarah a late night visit at her office and informs her that martha knapp asked him to find her missing baby sarah offers her help but laszlo seems apprehensive about accepting it Burns pays a visit to William Randolph Hearst, offering a lock of Knapp's hair to give away in his paper, but he turns it down and drums up a piece of yellow journalism about tensions between the U.S. and Spain. Uh, and the, the Spanish consulate in New York leaves his wife for a day, and she goes out with their newborn in a stroller, but gets spooked and heads home. She lays the baby down and falls asleep in the bath, but awakens and checks on the baby to find it has been replaced with a doll. Uh, this Sarah and Laszlo scene is where I thought maybe your you had made some comments maybe in our discarded first attempt at recording this episode about the idea that Laszlo's character in the show... Um, like, something that seemed weird to me was, like the idea i don't know if you ever had this but like if you ever knew anybody who was majoring in psychology in like school or somebody who had just taken their first like psychology course and then they all of a sudden turn into somebody who's like going to diagnose everybody they know <laughs> uh no not really okay well but i, I have I feel an interesting like, anecdote to that but keep going, keep going. I, I i feel as though that's how most of those people I knew anyway turned out to be or what 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 they did after they gained this knowledge from the guy. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know the ty- everyone knows the type where they yeah, they they learn something new or some factoid or they're they're taking some sort of class and then suddenly it's they infuse it into everything. I mean, I honestly I've been guilty of it, so yeah. I feel like most of us are in our youth, but not uh not at Laszlo's age and <laughs> well and yeah so that's what kind of struck me as weird is like Laszlo like kind of diagnosing Sarah and how she's decorated her office felt a little like weird for me not only between people who know each other but also somebody who's been in his profession for such a long time yeah it see yeah that that's the difference so tv laszlo is is really socially weird and awkward and book laszlo is to an extent but he can turn it on he knows mm. he knows how he has to appear in order to make waves in order to get anything done he knows how he has to act and he uh he still is like a high society person so he knows basically proper decorum and and social etiquette and that kind of thing so he wouldn't i don't think anything quite that bizarre would would happen but like you said especially because they know each other and that's the 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 
The relationships between the the main triad here between Laszlo, John, and Sarah are all weird, and they're I don't like them. <laughs> they're they're much they're much better in the book because it's much more relaxed in it. The the thing about the show, like you just don't need I don't I don't need this tension between the three leads because there's enough tension externally in the show you don't need it you don't need this internal strife too and that's what's refreshing about the book there's a little bit of the drama in the first book where john thinks laszlo and sarah are in love with each other yeah but but it's it's quickly dealt with and it's it's they just are like friends and they all respect each other and they all like each other and they all respect each other's professions and their relationships and it's just like chill and that's what's nice to read. Like you just know these are people who have a, a deep bond from this shared trauma of this case, but also for the way that they worked together and they were the ones who made it possible. Uh, and I miss that so much in the show because it's just not really there. Everything, there's just all this, I have, there's a, there's a scene later that I'll bring this back up. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it was a weird scene and I, I didn't really like it. And there there is always a little bit more of a formality between Laszlo and Sarah in the books because Laszlo is more of a gentleman than John and uh Sarah holds him up in this slightly higher regard in the book mm. because of who he is and because of what he did especially in the first case. But it's not like a it's not like an imbalance of power. It's just how they they view each other. And uh yeah, in the show there's just this weird tension still between them and it's just it's odd. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it there's something about this um like I don't really the show is kind of making it seem as though these three people have not interacted for the past year. Yes. Like I don't yeah and and it's not really even like Well, it, it, yes and no. Yeah, yes for these two, but no for like the other characters, which is weird because like like when they see the Isaacsons, it's very like hey come here like like they just saw each other like for dinner but in the book it's much more like they haven't seen the isaacsons in months because they've all kind of moved on from there in the book it's more like they they came together for this case they solved it and they all kind of moved on they still keep in touch you know they call or they write but they don't see each other a lot which is understandable you know in 1897 they can't just call each other or like they can't just facetime yeah but uh there is more of a feeling in the book, especially when the whole crew is back together. It feels so exciting again because it feels like lightning in a bottle like for the second time, which yeah. is really cool. And in the show, I'm not really getting that spark yeah, like you, like you do in the book. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? We have the introduction of uh, William Randolph Hearst and, of course, uh, Thomas Burns' uh, beautiful stroll up the stairs of the new york journal building fascinating it's it's the strangest <laughs> gate that he has just whoa yeah i was trying what to a, like find what a, somebody i don't to... know i was about to say what a choice but maybe yeah. that's how ted levine walks i don't know <laughs> i don't think so i think that was his choice and it's a cool one i feel like um i've, I've never watched a ton of psych <laughs> but i feel like there's been I feel like the scenes that I remember seeing seeing him in, it fe- if I feel like there was like a like a weird bounce to his step in some cases, and maybe it's just maybe it is him, but he's just got the weirdest like bow legged, beer bellied <laughs> stroll. Yeah, I don't know. It's great. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. 
for isolating that clip for us and sending it to us in the discord because yes please uh please join us on on patreon so you can uh have that uh video yes yeah if you join we'll we'll send it to you it'll be the it'll be your welcome your welcome package (laughs) yes uh we'll we'll try to isolate the wink from episode two as well but uh, we'll get there for those who haven't watched that yet um but yeah, so uh, is Hurst a big character in in the book? I got I I don't remember. I don't think so. The thing is, okay. most of the real people are not big players. The biggest one, the biggest player, if he's in the show, will not come until episode like probably six or seven. Okay, so two or three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's a big one. It's like a it's a weird one too, and he plays a large role. So. Mm. It'll be interesting to see if he shows up. All right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's weird to me that somebody like uh, like Hurst is in the story. It certainly seems like he's there to. Um, he's not there to, in the capacity that he's the father of uh, of John's fiance. Fiance. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that I mean, that's the thing. It feels like he's um he's kind of nipping at the heels of John in in this in this case at least. But also, it's he's got this weird um. Like Burns is this weird consort between the powers that be and like the the underdog journalists. Like, like I guess I don't have much context on where the New York Journal stood against the New York Times at that point in time. Yeah, I don't know who's the underdog and who's not at that. The point. journal is the underdog for sure. Okay, I yeah. thought so. So, um, so it seems like he holds a lot of power in in the in the respect of the show at least and kind of like being this weird dissemination of this point of dissemination of information that burns wants to kind of get out there and <laughs> burns is such a weird character because i think he i think in in another show he'd be played as either like a like a Brad Dourif type like real slimy and like slinky and behind the scenes or he'd be like kind of adult, like kind of a just a stupid uh, blunt instrument. And Ted Levine plays him as such a like capable, crafty, like, like, I don't know, like the scariest way he could basically because he it's- seems physically threatening as well as like mentally uh, like like a leap ahead of where you think he would be. I don't even necessarily want to put him there. Like, to me, he's this weird, like, he's basically the Joker and Batman. Like, he's out there just wrecking, wreaking havoc on on whatever, like, but also he's like this weird henchman or this tool by the powerful to kind of, like... That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the Joker doesn't answer to anyone. Burns has, like, a superior, which is why... Or superiors, which is why I feel like he would in another piece he'd be cast by a more typical like henchman mm-hmm. portrayal. But in the show, he does seem like almost he could almost strike out on his own and like run his own show. And he's he likes where he's at, which is scary. He's like really yeah. comfortable there. Yeah, very, he's awesome. Very weird, but very good. <laughs> I think his performance is uh is much better in uh in season two already something about season one he wasn't quite working for me throughout he was like cool and funny and like he was good for our laughs but in season two something about it feels more real and like i I don't know it's it's awesome yeah yeah it feels like there's a little bit more of a niche carved out for him for some Mm -hmm. reason 
already. Um, and, and I guess I didn't really expect him to be so instrumental in the plot of the second season. Yeah, right um, off the bat. Yeah, so. Um, all right, and then this is where we kind of meet the Spanish consulate, or the, 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 the uh, I forget what they call him, the governor general of, of, of Spain or, or whatever position this is and <laughs> something that I don't understand because I have an American education. Um, yep. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is kind of the, so this is the, is this the inciting incident of the book? Is yeah. this baby being taken? Yeah. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> yeah. Is it a baby being taken? Is what it I... is this baby being taken. Okay. But it does not happen like this. And it also happens off page. It okay. happens before the book. Like the inciting incident is really Sarah saying, hey, I got this case. Come check it out. Interesting. Okay. So and that happens within like the first 15 pages. Like it's it's immediate. And I, I kind of like the briskness of the way the book starts more than the show. I like what the show's doing, but like the book starts and you're just you're in it like it goes. Yeah. Which is really cool, considering how long it is. Like, you look at it, and you're just like, oh, damn it. But, <laughs> no, it, it grabs you right off the bat. Like I said, I'm, I picked it up. I started it the other day, and I meant to only... I was like, I'll read the first two chapters, and I read, like, the first five, because I couldn't put it down. Yeah, no, I, and, and here's the thing. I don't know why, but for some reason, this um, this mystery is more... Has hooked me m- more than than the initial mystery of the first... Like, I don't know what it... like. I, I can see maybe, that. Maybe dead kid strung up on a bridge isn't weird enough for me for some reason, which is horrifying. But well, with this one, there's there's hope. Like the yeah, there's hope that the baby's okay. Like you don't know what's gonna happen yet, and so there is that like race against the clock. I mean, in the first book, it's a race, and the first series, it's a race against the clock to prevent more boys from being murdered. Which obviously, like one is not worse than the other, but it's also that it's infants. You know, like that's. I think it, it it is elicits a really visceral response from people when you see, because you don't see that really that often. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, yeah. Also, I think one of the things that I think it, something that kind of sets it apart as well. All of the victims in that first season were these these um, forgotten children of immigrants in yeah. New York. And like people weren't necessarily necessarily going to notice them being gone. So mm-hmm. the idea that we have these, um, you know, at least in the case of of the consulate, this high profile baby, yeah, has been stolen. Um, you know, maybe that doesn't necessarily fit with Martha Knapp, but these are this is a baby that would be noticed, right? And so having people to kind of, it's not like um the the georgie's uh uh family in the first giorgio his family in the first season was that big of a right of a, yeah they, it's they true. didn't play that huge of a part so it seems like having that perspective a little bit more and seeing the grief that they're going through and and you know as you said having the actual stakes of like oh this baby is still alive for all we know yeah very interesting uh any thoughts on act two before i move on no, let's go. All right. In the middle of the night, Sarah is called to the Spanish consulate by Elizabeth Cady Stanton to see if she could get Laszlo to help with the abduction of the baby. Sarah rebuffs this request and asks, her, asks to take on the case herself. 
In the morning, she observes the back of the consulate and finds a basement window with a damaged frame where the abductor likely got in and a gate that leads straight to Fifth Avenue, an easy escape route to anywhere in New York City. Laszlo reflects on Martha Knapp's trial and dispute of, and his dispute of Marco's work as he runs into John at Delmonico's. He gets carried away about Dr. Marco's preposterous findings as John tries to introduce his fiancée, Violet Hayward. Laszlo insults Mrs. Hayward, but manages to recover and wishes them a good night as he heads out. <laughs> um, I liked Sarah going to, like, check, scoping out the situation and doing the police work. Yeah, like, it was really finding, cool. Finding the window and the gate and, and kind of putting all of those pieces together. It was fun to see her, uh, to, to see her doing that and kind of getting into that police procedure of it. Um, and... You know, I and as we had kind of touched on before, I think the uh, something that I didn't realize as much as you brought up was the idea that Sarah is important because she is a woman that will listen to the needs of these women that would probably get laughed off by the police. Yeah. And um, that didn't strike me beforehand, but now it makes it even more meaningful. And I, th- I think that's a very interesting point. Um, how do you feel about this? increased presence of elizabeth katie stanton like it, it seems like in the book she didn't she didn't participate as directly in some of the no she's not the reason that the senora is put together with sarah but it's fine like i don't i don't care <laughs> yeah it works it's um, cool that sarah is held in such regard by stanton like that's mm-hmm. that's kind of neat yeah, I liked her calling out Sarah as she was walking into the, yeah. the prison at the beginning as well. We also didn't say, I mean, kind of said it earlier, but that uh, that like aerial shot of Sarah on her way to Sing Sing with them, like going down Broadway or whatever in that direction was so cool. That was such an awesome shot. And it looked so much better than season one. Yeah, absolutely. Like just the, at first, when they first showed the establishing shot of New York and like the storms overhead, I was like, oh, maybe that's something they reused from the first one, but they took yeah, the snow right. off of the top of it, right? But um, as you get to see more of it, and Tim remarked in our Discord the idea of you get to see New York in the daylight this time around and, yeah, and kind which of is really experience cool. that way. It's very, it's very nice, and they did a very good job with it. Uh, but yeah, in regards to this, yeah, it was fine. I mean, it works. It works for the show. That's the thing. Like, on most of the deviations they're making, they work really well. So they don't really bother me. I miss things, but there's not a lot that I would want to change. Okay. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. We'll see. That's true. One thing I want to change is that John, like, stopped smoking. What the fuck? Huge bummer. What the, the comedy of this podcast is now on the line. <laughs> what are we going to laugh at now? I know. He might Sarah's start up been again. Smoking more, I think, but it's not yeah, enough. That's true. Drinking more, almost. Yeah. You know, I think that we're so this John fiance business is not in the book, and uh, it's it's funny for the show because I they're clearly setting him up to just kind of be like, Ugh, f this bitch, and like <laughs> just go back to his old ways, which is really exciting. Like he's going to yeah. be faced with a decision: Do I marry this girl and be comfortable for the rest of my life as the heir to the Hearst Empire, <laughs> or do I just? start slumming it with laszlo playing dice in the alley with stevie and drinking and and whoring around we know we we know his true nature it's gonna come back so hopefully by the end of the season he has a whole pack of cigarettes in his mouth once again there's still hope by the by the end of episode three i hope (laughs) um 
speaking of him and, and Laszlo at Delmonico's, I was happy how much Delmonico's was in this episode because it's just they're yeah. there. At it's least a huge deal in the books. In like it's that's their that's their big food. Like that's where they go. It's like <laughs> they they call attention to it constantly. How the chef and the owner and the maitre d know them by name and by sight, mm. and they say right this way we'll take you to a special table like in the back where you like they have all their case debriefings there if they're not at the office they're at dell's hmm. and if they have to go to the office they frequently call the chef at dell's and have them make them carry out and they take it to the office like <laughs> it's a thing that's awesome so it is we cool did, to see i, I glossed show. over i glossed over john trying to pay for the bill at breakfast yeah that uh, was funny that was pretty good and and he's the 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 maitre d's just like well no miss violet has already and he's like oh yeah okay <laughs> she's worth a thousand times what you are <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and john comes from money too which is funny like he uh he's 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 doing good or his family yeah. is they actually say in the second book that his grandma died between books and he got i was curious about uh, he got a healthy inheritance from her okay that stevie makes a joke at john's expense that he can't have spent it all already and then they're like i don't know maybe <laughs> it's been like it's been like six months or something um yeah and then laszlo's kind of uh his his dig at uh miss hayward says i fear if i spoke with you at any great length you would know the deep recesses of my mind and he says or the shimmering shadow shallows yeah which is just <laughs> yikes <laughs> and what does john say doesn't he just go laszlo uh, he, he, yeah, on. I forget exactly what he says, but he 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 calls him on it. He's I basically like, bro. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then Laszlo's every mind is like the ocean, Miss Hayward. There's surface and depth in all of us. It was like the most diplomatic like recovery. Very yeah, good. that's the thing about Laszlo is like he's not he's not an asshole. I, I don't think he's an asshole. He's just really tired all the time and like mm. doesn't like to deal with like the social norms that he has to deal with and like i said in the book he can he can turn it on a lot more willingly and easily it seems than in the show but i think maybe he still can in the show he just doesn't care to he's like i don't give a shit like yeah get out of my i don't care who's this get out well and as you were saying if it feels like john kind of has one foot out the door then will laszlo really like deign to care about it that much that's true um but yeah that was that was kind of one of the things that kind of made me think huh they haven't really seen each other in a while because like john's like engaged to this woman and blasma yeah. hasn't met her yet that's true pretty pretty interesting but uh all right act four laszlo raps at the door of the lying in hospital to see dr marco but the doctor refuses to see him marco tells his matron to not be alarmed as they run a tight ship by discipline order and example one of which was martha knapp Millie, one of Sarah's employees, informs her that uh, all but one baby at the morgue was accounted for, but the unaccounted one was a boy and could not be the Spanish consulate's daughter. Sarah asks Bitsy to call on John Moore to see if there's an update on the nap case. Sarah takes another look at the crime scene and finds the doll that took uh, the place of the baby is from Siegel Cooper, a store on Ladies Mile in New York City. At the same time, a young girl picks up what she thinks is a doll at that very same store, and it turns out to be a dead baby. John learns as he uh, learns of this as he argues his new piece with his editor, Bernie, so Bernie sends him to check it out, and John asks the secretary to summon Sarah there. Um, what do you think of the Laszlo-Dr. Marco dynamic? I think it's kind of fun to have at least a... 
uh, somebody on Laszlo's professional level to I kind agree. of yep. foil with him. It is. It's super cool. And somebody who seems respected and like uh, taken seriously, yeah. which is cool. Yeah, I like it a lot I, for exactly that reason. It gives him kind of a foil that's uh, kind of his equal in a way. I like it a lot. Yeah, and we should say Dr. Marco is uh, portrayed by um, the man who played Roose Bolton in in, uh, mm. in Game of Thrones. Michael McElhattan plays Dr. Marco. And I, I always liked him in Game of Thrones. I thought Roose Bolton was a very, like, um, he's got, like, a likable face, but was a very, like, you could, he, by the time you know further down the road how much of, like, a despicable calculating person he is on the inside... Um, it's interesting to see Dr. Marco as like a more um, on his face type of evil. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. This is one of the scenes where we see Sarah doing that delegation that you brought up. The idea that Millie went to check out the morgue and Bitsy's calling on John. Uh, I do like that kind of dynamic between the characters. So I, I think you brought up a good point there. Yeah, I really liked um, it. And kind of the idea that she's like taking these women under her wing to like also teach them the ways of criminal investigation i think is is really cool because it's not like like i feel like she got all of that knowledge herself and it wasn't through her work at the police and police department it was just kind of something she sought out Mm -hmm. and so the idea that she provides that opportunity for them i think is is cool um but yeah uh we can talk about the baby it was it was horrifying yeah, that was terrible. The doll too. I forgot to talk about the doll. The doll was yeah, the so doll. gross. And on the first shot, I was like, I thought it was a real baby. I mm-hmm. thought it was the baby, and like her eyelids were all cut up and stuff. And I was like, whoa, that would have been bad. <laughs> yeah, yes, it would. This was bad too. This was. I've never seen anything like that on TV, and uh, mm-hmm. at least, yeah, yeah, it shocked, shocked me, very much. Yeah, I. Uh... I don't, I had already said this, I I don't feel as, like, I I was shocked that they would show it on cable television, which is weird. Like, I don't feel like I run up against that that often anymore, where I'm, like, shocked to actually see something, but, um... The only other show that's done that in recent memory for me is Hannibal, and I don't even think, was Hannibal even on network TV? Hannibal was on NBC, yeah, it was on network. insane. Hannibal has so many, <laughs> has so many like crime scenes and like bodies that were arrayed in such a way that like I, that show did something to my brain for like a day after I binged it. Like I couldn't sleep that night. Yeah. I couldn't sleep the other night though after this, like this and then the episode of SVU that my wife and I watched where a baby <laughs> died. I straight up could not sleep and I kept checking the baby monitor all night. Because yeah. it, they both affected me that much. Like, and she even asked me in the morning. She was like, "You, you what? You like couldn't sleep well?" And I was like, "No." And she goes, "You were checking the monitor like every thirty minutes." And I was like, "Yeah," because I couldn't stop thinking about these shows. Like, they got in into my brain in such a way that like it really and nothing does that anymore. So that was that was an unusual experience for me to feel that affected well, by something. And it also has me worried because, like, this is the this was the first episode. Like, I feel like yeah. it's not like things are going to get lighter from here on out, right? <laughs> you know, no, not likely. <sighs> so I feel like there's more horror to come mm-hmm. in that regard. Um, 
but just kind of that whole the cross-cutting between sarah investigating kind of the crime scene and 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 the girl at the store walking around and kind of taking delight in all the things it was it's like an interesting parallel between the two but then they both like head towards this revelation of of what Mm, you're actually meant to see here and it was it was very good yeah the show continues to be really excellently directed and shot like no question top notch absolutely yeah um and then john arguing with his editor i like uh his editor seems like this uh it sounds like john is john has kind of made his way out of the lifestyles section and is being uh tried in like a in in like the i don't know if it's like if it would be like the politics or like criminal or whatever kind of section of the of the paper it would be or just maybe the hard news beat or whatever yeah so like it's like this is his first chance to kind of prove himself as as like a real deal journalist and not like a fluff journalist or something of that nature. Yeah, I like that he's actually a journalist now and not just like a sketch guy. Yeah, like he was in the like in the first season. I really never got the vibe that he was an actual reporter. He no. just seemed like a crime like a sketch dude, and I was like, this is not it doesn't work. And it was yeah. it was it was stupid. In the first season, and I like that in this one, they're like, no, he's actually a reporter, and he's actually got, like, press credentials, and, like, can use them, and, like, that's that's really his driving force throughout the books, is that he's, like, a, he's a journalist, and, and a hardcore one, so, yeah, yeah I liked that a lot. <clears throat> uh, and I did mention Ladies Mile in New York, I didn't know anything about Ladies Mile, but it's, like, a stretch of, of shopping district, like, a shopping district in New York that is still there today, um, but that brings me to the point of like i looked up more in this episode like i looked up more on wikipedia and writing the notes for this episode than i have for like any of the other shows Mm -hmm. that we've done yeah it's kind of interesting it's helping me like fix a little bit more of history and time in my brain so it's kind of cool to like delve deeper into some of that stuff sure all right and the final act uh, the Isaacsons study the corpse at Siegel Cooper and find toxic abrasions in the baby's mouth, leading them to believe the baby was poisoned. Sarah and John arrive and ask to take a look to see if the baby is the Spanish Governor General's missing child, but it does not appear to be her. Sarah says Lazo should come take a look, but the Isaacsons push back and have him meet them at their lab. Lazlo checks the child for a small, non-cancerous tumor that Mrs. Knapp told him about and confirms that the child was Mrs. Knapp's. John, Sarah, and Laszlo meet up at Sarah's agency to compare notes and discuss what they know. They think they've found another serial killer, and they must begin the hunt now. Um, awesome to see the Isaacsons back. Yep. Um, also horrifying that the cops are just laughing at them doing their work. Mm-hmm. In, in the but just <clears throat> that that also made me feel sick <laughs> in a in like a less like visceral way and a more conceptual way but um so yeah this is the you kind of almost touched on this earlier but this the second scene that i describe is everybody getting back together it seems like or at least this is like you know i can't remember if the isaacsons are in the room with them at the end there or not but it's kind of them i think founding this journey again yeah i I loved that line by sarah saying like we gotta what did she say we we need to get to work or we need to uh, she says, uh, we must begin. We must begin, her. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, they do write on a chalkboard. It yep. is not uh, sw- It is not 
pulled out from behind a Japanese curtain or anything of that nature, which is a shame. But uh, but I did <laughs> like I was watching this with Nicole and <laughs> the chalkboard popped up and I was like, there's a chalkboard. <laughs> and she was like, what? She's like, what? Like, hey, don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, I was- miss. That's one thing I miss from the books is the, the reverence for like the the process, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I've already talked enough about it, but it's just it's there's that little lack of like that like i said that spark and that like that respect <clears throat> it's in the in the book they even talk about because 808 broadway was what was their headquarters during the investigation the beecham investigation and then when the case is done they all leave but sarah keeps it she stays on the lease as her detective agency and then she brings them all back there to meet the senora in the book mm-hmm. to listen to her story and <clears throat> even as they're walking into the building and taking the elevator up Stevie and Cyrus and John in the book they they kind of this like kind of calm settles over them because they remember they start remembering like the because they haven't been back there since the case and like the whole sense memory of like being in that space and like the smell of it and the feel of it starts bringing back all these memories of the horrors that they were enduring, but also the friendships that were formed, but also the death of Mary. They keep coming back to like that. And then Laszlo never recovering from that. And even when they get up into the space and they see like, they call attention to like the billiards table in the back and Sarah has just pulled like a sheet over it. Cause it's like not really in use. And then they see the piano is still there. That Cyrus Cyrus is like an accomplished pianist in the books. And mm-hmm. he, he often would sit at the piano and just kind of like, quietly play some classical tunes while they would like talk aloud and it kind of set the tone and it gave them this kind of ambiance where they could think and they could put themselves and their feelings and their thoughts onto the chalkboard and there's all this like this kind of ritualistic stuff in the book that is really really awesome and it really it it threads the the relationships and the friendships in a really awesome way and so in the book as they step back into that space they walk over they're all kind of checking it out. And like Stevie is like, finds this little perch along a windowsill where he always sat while he was listening. And he goes back there and kind of sits down and Cyrus goes to the piano and he hits a couple of keys and he looks at Sarah and he smiles and he's like still in tune. And she's like, <laughs> yep. And he sits down and starts playing it. And John kind of has this moment where he's kind of just like all the nostalgia of it washes over him. And it's like, just it's so wonderful in the book. And you can see why this would appeal to me, but yep. it, it's just, it, <laughs> It just is part of the bedrock of that team. And, the, and it's not just about the people. It's about the place and it's about the objects in it. And all that stuff is very tactile. And it's something we can all relate to because we all have those spaces and we all have those objects. And it's something that there's there's like the reverence of it and the kind of hollowed spaces like that aren't really there in the show, which is just it doesn't take away, but it's just kind of sad because it could add so much more. Those little things that you don't need dialogue to convey are just uh i'm trying to think of other like major it's almost like the scene in in the force awakens when han comes back onto the falcon like he doesn't need to say shit and the audience is like there with him like we get it and even in like the last jedi when luke kind of walks into the cockpit same thing all you need is like a musical cue and for the right character to be in the right space at the right time and it's done like that's movies right that's like that's what it's all about so that I, i miss that kind of stuff 
Yeah, I think I recall us discussing the fact that in the season in in season one they didn't do that great of a job of like establishing geography and like helping you understand the places that we were at. Like yeah. I think we were even wondering at some point like were they even at another location or were they just at Laszlo's Institute? We didn't know, and, yeah. and it wasn't clear, and so it feels like they don't have that to draw off of. Uh, mm-hmm. like the, in the way that they would need to in order to pull that type of moment off for this season so that's that's a bummer it makes me sad as well just kind of thinking of oh yeah even the and little moments that it has so much about. impact in the book too because laszlo laszlo's not even in the for in the book in the in the angel of darkness for like a while like he because he's dealing with the institute stuff and sarah brings it to she wants to bring it to him, but he's not at the house. Stevie and Cyrus are. And so they go get John and she brings them and she's like, hear this woman out. What do you think? And then someone's like, should we bring Laszlo into it? And John's like, I don't know yet. And they're kind of weighing because they know he's still grieving over the death of his, of his love, but also the, lo- the loss of his Institute. And so he doesn't come in. And then when they tell him about the investigation, he kind of says, he doesn't know if he has it in him emotionally or mentally to get involved in another horrifying venture like this. And then they finally convince him. <clears throat> and in the book, it's so kick ass when he shows up at 808 and he walks in and they all kind of look at him and he walks over to the chalkboard and he pulls the drape off and he grabs the, he grabs a fresh piece of chalk mm-hmm. and starts writing. And they all, they, they call attention to that. All their body posture changes as soon as he starts, because they all sit forward. Cause they know that like, all right, the captain's at the driver's seat. And it, it's it's seriously it's seriously like the yeah it's like the book equivalent of like get this man a shield it's like <laughs> get this man a chalkboard beautiful yeah well sad that the show didn't quite pull that off but overall how do you feel about the premiere of this season are you are you in are you happy that it's back do you feel um, are you happy about this adaptation continuing yeah I'm I'm thrilled and still surprised that it's happening like i'm (laughs) i'm really shocked that there's a second season of this i think we both were (laughs) like what why like we were so surprised when the news broke Mm -hmm. that they were doing this and it 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 was so weird like it must have done well enough that they were like yeah do another like it's just so strange awards yeah it's but it's awesome like it's it's awesome and i think the only reason that i think it's so strange is because well, there wasn't much buzz while it was on, but also like the, 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 I don't know, to me, it didn't live. The first season didn't live up to the potential of the book. It didn't deliver, but I still liked it, but I didn't think it was good enough necessarily that so many other people would like it. But season two right now feels stronger. It feels, uh, it feels a little more practiced and it feels like everyone's a little more comfortable and everyone knows a little more of what they're doing. And I think maybe the first book was harder to adapt because they weren't sure how like one to one they should be with it because they really tried to be at a lot of points. It just didn't quite land. And maybe it would have benefited from a little more deviation because the second book so far is different. And I don't know if that's why I like it so much, but Tim put it pretty well where he was basically like, it it just feels, it feels stronger. And I actually, I forgot exactly what he said, but he did make a good point that if you join the discord, you can find out for yourself. (laughs) <laughs> but I do like it. I do like it a lot. I think it's a really good, strong start. I think it's uh, it's definitely in line with what it should be. But as far as the events of the book, this is almost kind of a big, fat prologue to what the book is because it does get a little more true to the book in the second episode. But I think 
it's it's awesome to see them all back. You know, the casting is has always been really good, and I I wish that the writing of the characters was a little more in tune with what I expect. But you know, I'm only me, right? And and mm-hmm. speak as the from the perspective of a reader. So I think for a lot of people, uh, it's going to work really well. I mean, I'm <clears throat> I'm really excited to hear what you think. I'm really excited to see what Tim thinks because Tim has read the first book, but not watched the first season of the show <laughs> except for the first he watched the premiere of, of of season one and then he said it wasn't enough to hold him i think which is totally fair uh Interesting. especially if you've read it but the i really hope he sticks with the second season because i would love to hear this kind of we've got like a venn diagram of of <laughs> uh, podcast people with uh with the rela- relationship to the show so i think it could be really fun yeah, I I gotta say I as I said earlier I am more I feel more into the, I feel like I've bought in more after this first hour than I did in the first hour of the last season and and I'm excited about that. It's good to see these characters together. I, it was fun laughing at little moments like um like Laszlo kind of being a dick but recovering from it and and uh how many times they're at Delmonico's and just like all the little things that that we had commented on in the past and that we discussed it. It just kind of felt good to see everybody here again. And you know, the Isaacsons and, and, and everything like that. So yep. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be talking about it. I'm happy to be watching the show. And, yeah, uh, me too. Yeah. Any other final thoughts? Uh, I don't think so. I didn't right. take too many notes. I was just kind of trying to, I was just along for the ride. So yeah, I'm good cool well once again you can find more episodes of our podcast on the alienist.tv we're also on apple podcast stitch app podcast stitcher radio and google play podcasts you can email us at feedback at the alienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast and share your thoughts on tnt's the alienist so we can read them on our show send us corrections observation or anything regarding the alienist or our podcast the Midwest Podcast Network has other shows about video games, horror movies, HBO's Westworld, and AMC's Preacher. Find out more about these shows as well as how to support the network at MidwestPodcastNetwork.com. Our theme music is the song Division by Kevin McLeod, and it is being used under an Attribution Creative Commons license. That's all for this episode of The Alienist Recap. We can't wait to see what the next episode of The Alienist brings, but until then, we will see you at the chalkboard.